Good morning. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 34 and we'll work our way through chapter 5, verse 11. So starting in Acts 4 this morning, and I'm going to start in verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the price for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning for the privilege it is to freely sing praises to you. To acknowledge that in Jesus Christ we have eternal life because of his death and resurrection, to acknowledge that you are gracious and you are good and you extend forgiveness over and over and over again, even in our sin. Father, this morning we meet a somewhat familiar but also very difficult passage. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom, that our minds would understand it and what it has to say to us. I pray we would be alert and listen. And I pray that our hearts would not resist your word or your spirit as he seeks to move within us and to change us and transform us this morning. Father, I pray that we would be obedient and by the power of your spirit, we would submit to you and obey. We praise you, Father. I pray for my words that they would be clear. I pray they would be truthful. And I pray that each person would hear exactly what you are wanting to communicate this morning. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, with both of my daughters now, have uh, read the Little House on the Prairie series of books, the original books that were written back in the 1930s. I'm about halfway through them with our middle daughter. And a few weeks ago, we finished the second in the series, uh, which is called Farmer Boy. And uh, Farmer, wow, okay, that sounded like a guy. Maybe you uh, read some of these, all right. Uh, Farmer Boy. Is a uh, Farmer Boy is a great story. It's about Almanso Wilder, who eventually became Laura Ingalls' husband down the line. It's about his childhood 
which happened back in the 1860s. And so it gives you a picture of a farming community in upstate New York in the 1860s. And I was struck as I was reading it by one particular incident described in the book in which all of the kids, they went to a one-room schoolhouse, all ages from, you know, what we would call kindergarten all the way up to their senior year in high school. And the teacher, one teacher would teach all of these kids, maybe 30 kids in the room. Well, in this little schoolhouse in upstate New York, there were some kids who were unruly, some teenagers who were angry. They were disrespectful. They showed up late. They had a history of kicking the teachers out. They would beat the teachers or chase them out because they were big and strong and the teachers couldn't keep up with them. And so they get a new teacher in the school and these boys hatch a plan to take the teacher out. And they pick a certain day and the teacher kind of knows it's coming. And here's what's described when these boys decide that they're going to take this teacher out. The teacher is Mr. Course. It says the door banged open and Big Bill Ritchie, that's one of the students, swaggered in. The other big boys were behind him. Mr. Course looked at them and, the, and did not say anything. Bill Ritchie laughed in his face and still he did not speak. The big boys jostled Bill and he jeered again at Mr. Course. Mr. Course lifted the lid of his desk, dropped one hand out of sight behind the raised lid. He said, Bill Ritchie, come up here. Big Bill jumped up, tore off his coat, yelling, come on, boys. He rushed up the aisle. Almanzo felt sick inside. He didn't want to watch, but he couldn't help it. Mr. Course stepped away from his desk. His hand came from behind the desk lid and a long, thin black streak hissed through the air. It was a black snake ox whip, 15 feet long. Mr. Course held the short handle loaded with iron that could kill an ox. The thin long lash coiled around Bill's legs and Mr. Course jerked. Bill lurched and almost fell. Quick as black lightning, the lash circled and struck and coiled again and again Mr. Course jerked. Come up here, Bill Ritchie, he said, jerking Bill toward him and backing away. Bill could not reach him. Faster and faster, the lash was hissing and crackling, coiling and jerking. And more and more quickly, Mr. Course backed away, jerking Bill almost off his feet. Up and down they went in the open space in front of the desk. The lash kept coiling and tripping Bill. Mr. Course kept running backward and striking. Bill's trousers were cut through. His shirt was slashed, his arm bleeding from the bite of the lash. It came and went, hissing, too fast to be seen. Bill rushed and the floor shook when the whiplash jerked him. He got up swearing and tried to reach the teacher's chair to throw it. The lash jerked him around. He began to bawl like a calf. He blubbered and begged. The lash kept on hissing, circling, jerking. Bit by bit, it jerked Bill to the door. Mr. Course threw him headlong into the entry and slammed and locked the door. Turning quickly, he said, now, John, come on up. Wow. Now you read something like that and you go, um, does that seem excessive? Uh, Does that seem like discipline that would be allowed in our schools today? No, right? You laugh immediately. If something like that happened, uh, it would be a matter of seconds before the teacher would lose his job and probably go to jail, right? And uh, the next scene in the book, he takes the next student and he does the same thing until all of the boys are begging to get out of the classroom. They're bleeding and they're climbing out the window and they never come back. Now, I read that and I think, yeah, that seems a little bit like excessive discipline to me. And maybe you think the same thing. But it's interesting, 1860s in rural United States, it seems perfectly normal. Laura Wilder writes that without any hint of judgment, Mr. Course doesn't lose his job. And I think a lot of it is because uh, we have differing values now than they did then, don't we? We value the right of the individual. We value a child's right not to be beaten in school, right? Uh, Back then, they had a strong emphasis on submission to authority and on the health of the community. So if one person threatened the health of the community, it was okay to pull out the ox whip. 
And nothing bad happens to the teacher. In fact, everybody takes the teacher's side. Now, as you think about something like that, whether you believe it is excessive discipline or not, to a certain extent, does depend on perspective. If you're from a culture 150 years ago, it seems perfectly normal. You're from our culture, it seems horrible. As we read the book of Acts this morning, and we get into Acts chapter 5 in particular, we have a pretty difficult passage and an instance of discipline by God that seems excessive. If you think about it, we're in a context where the grace of God is flowing through the church. They are proclaiming that Jesus Christ died for our sin and he rose again. And that's the message of the early church, that the love and the grace of God covers all of our sin. And then we have this account stuck right there at the beginning of the book of Acts, about five chapters in, where God allows two people to die because of their sin. He judges them because of their sin in a very harsh way. And we go, what do I do with that? Where's the grace of God in this passage? And in fact, it's such a tough passage that there are some commentators, if they don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, they look at it and they go, that can't have happened. That's not a real account because it seems so inconsistent with the flow of the rest of the book of Acts. So we're going to ask this morning, what do we do with a passage like this? Why does this happen to Ananias and Sapphira? And as we walk through this passage... The thing that we're going to see is that God takes hypocrisy very seriously. He takes hypocrisy very seriously. Ananias and Sapphira are a couple that decide to act publicly one way, as if they are one thing. And privately and secretly, they do something entirely different. They're a couple who try to deceive the church and introduce a lack of trust and integrity right at the point at which the church is beginning to grow and thrive. And so God says, I will not allow that to happen to my church. And he judges them. And what we see from this passage is God takes sin and particularly hidden sin and hypocrisy. He takes it very seriously. Now we're going to walk through this passage and what we'll see obviously, and you know this, is God doesn't always judge all hypocrites like this, right? If he did, uh, churches would be a lot smaller. And yet, it gives us a little taste of how seriously God views sin. And the thing we recognize, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we preach and proclaim and believe the grace of God. That in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sin. And if you have believed in Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. However, God still judges his people. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You and I will one day stand before Jesus Christ and your, your life will be evaluated. If you believed in Jesus, that evaluation is not to determine your eternal destiny, but instead it will determine, as the scripture moves on, we find it determines the level of reward we receive. It determines if we receive what Paul calls the crown of righteousness and what James calls the crown of life. It determines our extent to which we will worship and praise God fully with all our capacity in heaven and the extent to which we'll reign in his kingdom. And your life will be evaluated. And at that moment, all that's going to matter is hearing the praise of Jesus Christ. And in some instances, that judgment begins now. And that's what we see with Ananias and Sapphira. And my guess is that there are some of us in this room this morning, that if you're honest, you say, yeah, I am a hypocrite. I put on one face when I'm here on Sunday. I put on a face when I'm in my Christian organizations. I post verses to my Facebook wall. And yet, privately, Out of public view, 
I'm living completely a different way. I profess to be one thing and I am something different. And what we see in this passage is that God takes that seriously and hypocrisy will be judged. It's a sobering passage. And that's where some of you are this morning. I'll never forget several years ago, my wife and I lived in a house closer to the center of town and right next door to us, there were some students who were officers in a large Christian organization here on campus. So they would get up during the week and they would lead their group in songs of worship and in studying the word. And then they would come back to their house where we live next door to them and host large drinking parties and engage in sexual immorality, allowing people to stay over the night and all kinds of crazy antics. That's a picture of hypocrisy. That's what Ananias and Sapphira are engaging in. Now, all of us would say, yeah, I'm I'm a sinner. I struggle with sin. What we see with Ananias and Sapphira, though, is a deliberate attempt to deceive, to say, I want people to think I am one thing, when in reality, I want to be another. And God takes it seriously. We're going to see why as we walk through this passage. Look again at Acts chapter 4. Start in verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, the first thing that we see is that God's people are representing the gospel. God's people are representing the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. All right, everything is going well. And here's what happens. These people, anybody who has land, they pledge the land to the church and they sell the land and then they take the proceeds and they lay it at the apostles' feet and the apostles take that money and they distribute it amongst the poor. Now, this is an amazing community. All right, now some people have looked at this and said, this looks like communism. It's not. All right, and here's why. Because in communism, let's say I make $100,000, you make 50, they take 25 of mine and give it to you without asking me to even it out. Communism is non-voluntary. What's interesting is this is a voluntary system where people motivated by the love of God say, I'm gonna give my possessions to those in need within the church. Why do they do that? Because they really believed that Jesus Christ had come to earth from heaven. He had set aside all of his riches, all of his glory, given his life on our behalf and risen again. And they said, in light of the immense grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and all that he has given, we are compelled then to demonstrate that in the way we view our possessions. And they saw that the way you view money is a key indicator of the way you view God. The way you view property is one of the key indicators of how you view God. And so they gave of their money. They lay it at the apostles' feet. This is an idealistic community. We all would like to think that there's a community today like that. We would all like to think on some level that wealthy people would just distribute their money to everybody who has need. That's why you have urban legends pop up. Like if you forward this email to five people, Bill Gates will send you $1,000, right? That was the very first email forward I got over and over and over again back when email was kind of new. I would get it almost every day. And people would say, this probably isn't true, but just in case, I'm going to send it to you. And you'd get it over and over, even though you go, okay, there's no way that he can track this. And even if he could, do you think he would use random people and send them $1,000 instead of his huge staff at Microsoft? Well, of course not. But we want to believe that somebody in that position of wealth would be that generous. 
I saw another rumor online that turned out not to be true that Donald Trump had walked into a restaurant and given a waiter a $10,000 tip. Turned out not to be true. But we all want to believe that those with money would say, you know, I'm going to share it with everybody. And that's what's happening in this community. And Barnabas is a key illustration of that. Barnabas, it says his name is son of encouragement. Here's a guy, as, he, as you walk throughout the book, Barnabas is a guy who constantly sees the best in people. He is a half glass full type of guy. And I went and saw Finding Nemo with my daughters a few weeks ago. And some of y'all maybe have gone and watched it again. And there's this great scene where they're sitting inside of a whale, Marlon, Nemo's dad, and Dory, the little blue fish. And they're inside a whale and the whale is full of water and then the water begins to drain. And Marlon begins to panic and says, we got to get out of here. The water is almost gone. We're going to go into his tummy. He's going to eat us. It's half empty already. And Dory looks at it. And what does she say? It looks half full to me, right? She's an optimist. That's Barnabas. Barnabas sees the best in people. In fact, when Paul comes to know Jesus and no one will believe that he really trusts Jesus, Barnabas is the guy that brings him to the apostles and says, listen to this guy. When Mark deserts them on a missionary journey, Barnabas is the guy that says, no, Mark, there's still a place for you in God's plan. Come with me, even though other people don't trust him. And so this son of encouragement, it says, he takes one of his fields, he sells it, lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Everything is clicking along, and God's people are representing the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's when Satan attacks. It's right at this point that the enemy comes in and says, I want to tear apart what God is beginning to build. And so hypocrisy begins to threaten God's purposes. Look at chapter five, verses one and two. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, now this is an interesting passage. You go, okay, what exactly did they do? He has a piece of land and it says he sold it and he just brought a portion of the proceeds. Now in and of itself, Not a bad thing to do, right? If you sell some land and you say, I'm going to give half of this money to the church, great. Okay, but the Greek word that is used for he held back a portion of it actually indicates, says he embezzled it. He held back for himself something that rightfully belonged to the church. And what we infer from this passage is that Ananias and Sapphira got together and they said, all right, we're going to tell the church that we're going to sell this land and give all of the money to the church. But they underreported how much they sold. And so when the money comes in, they say, all right, we're going to take however much. We'll take 80% and give it to the church. We'll keep 20% for ourselves. And they colluded together to do this. And you say, all right, why, why would they do that? And here's why. They wanted the glory of generosity without actually being generous. They wanted to be viewed as generous by the church, to have people look at them like they looked at Barnabas and go, way to go, Ananias. Way to go, Sapphira. You are a spiritual person. You are a generous person. You get the grace of God. And so they hatch a plan to look good without actually being good. Ran across an article this past week. It says, man to plead guilty to impersonating a military officer. This happens every once in a while, but it says a Palm Springs man accused of impersonating a military officer and wearing medals for bravery he was never awarded agreed Friday to plead guilty to a federal misdemeanor charge. Stephen Douglas Burton, 39, entered into a plea agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office. He could face up to a year in federal prison and $100,000 in fines. The defendant allegedly showed up for his 20-year class reunion at Alhambra High School in Martinez in October 2008, wearing a Marine Corps dress uniform studded with medals. 
including the Navy Cross, which is the second highest commendation for heroism. Burton wore Lieutenant Colonel's insignia and allegedly told people he spent a career in the service, according to an FBI investigation. One of the defendant's classmates, a U.S. Navy commander, was suspicious and snapped a photograph of Burton, which shows him wearing 14 medals, including a Navy Cross, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Legion of Merit Badge, and Combat Action Ribbon. According to the plea agreement, he chose to pose as a Marine because he preferred the Marine uniforms to the others and bought a book that explained what the awards meant and how to affix them to the uniform. Now, a couple of things came uh, into my mind when I read this. I thought, first of all, if you're going to impersonate somebody, don't start quite so big, right? Uh, Don't say I'm a lieutenant colonel with 14 medals, okay? The second thing I thought, at what point does somebody get that nervous about their high school reunion? That they say, you know, my job's not going as well as I would like. Career hadn't taken off. Family's not as good as I would like. I promote myself to lieutenant colonel, right? (laughs) And by the way, I'm extremely brave, right? And he pastes 14 medals onto his chest and he shows up. Now, obviously, it was somebody saw through it. One of his classmates sees through it. He goes to jail for this. Now, why does somebody do that? Because they want to be thought of as brave. They want to be thought of as a person with that kind of dedication and discipline without actually being that person. Being in the military is hard. It takes years to earn all of those medals, and some people never do. It takes years to work your way up through the ranks. And so this guy thought, I can have all of the acclaim for that overnight without doing any of the work. That's what Ananias and Sapphira do. That is the temptation of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy says this, that I don't want to do the work of being godly because it's hard. It requires me to know the word of God. It requires me to submit my desires to the spirit of God. It requires me to spend years seeking to know him. And Paul writes to Timothy that those who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Requires me to experience tension between me and the world around me. And so a lot of us go, I don't want to do that. It's much easier just to put on the nice clothes. It's much easier just to learn a few verses with which I can impress people. It's much easier to just seem godly rather than be. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira do. And this is very reminiscent of what happens in the early days of the nation of Israel as they are conquering the land. You remember they go to Jericho and they take over Jericho. They march around and the walls fall down. God says, don't take any of the spoil. But there's one guy, Achan, that takes some of the gold. He runs off to his tent and he hides it under the ground. And he just pretends to fit in with everybody else. And God judges him as well. And in the early days of this church, the danger is that this early church would become known for hypocrisy rather than for generosity and grace and love. It's so tempting. If you think about the Pharisees, Jesus is constantly onto the Pharisees for what? Hypocrisy. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but you let the inside be dirty and nasty. And then you drink from this dirty cup. It's like when I was a kid and my mom would say, clean the room. What would I do? I would take everything on the floor and shove it into the closet. Room clean, problem solved, right? No, it's not clean. It's just as dirty. It just doesn't look dirty. So when mom comes in and glances, she goes, thumbs up, way to go. You can go play. That's hypocrisy. And some of us are living in that sort of mindset. I want to seem right before God. I want to seem like I know him deeply. 
Maybe I've joined numerous organizations. Maybe I come every Sunday and I'm here every time the church opens, yet I know that my heart is far from God. And I know that the way I act, the way I speak, the way I think are not consistent with one who says I'm wanting to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it threatens the unity of the church. And even in our culture, unfortunately, Christians are often known for hypocrisy rather than for grace. And so it threatens what God is trying to do through this church, that he wants to extend the grace of Jesus Christ. So Ananias and Sapphira hatch this plan, but then God judges them to protect his church. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Okay, so Ananias comes in and he represents this as the full price. And somehow, we don't know how, somehow Peter knows that he's lying. The most likely explanation is that Peter, moved by the Spirit of God, knows that Ananias is lying, and he also recognizes this as the work of Satan, God's enemy. And he says, in the midst of all this growth, God's enemy has come in and he's entered your heart, Ananias, to lie, not to me, but to God. Because the church represents the purposes of Jesus Christ, and so you're trying to introduce enmity and strife and hypocrisy and deceit into this church, and so you've lied to God's Spirit. And on hearing this, it says, Ananias fell down and he died. That's serious. Now you look at that and you go, now how did that happen? Well, we know Peter didn't kill him. He just fell down. Did God kill him? Did God remove his protection from him? Does Ananias have a heart attack? We really don't know, but they see this as the judgment of God. And then they grab him real quick. They wrap him up and they go bury him. That was unusual. Usually you didn't bury someone within a couple of hours. They did it quickly But only in an instance where someone died by the hand of God would they do it this fast to get him out of sight. And then a few hours later, here comes Sapphira, probably looking for Ananias, right? He hasn't come home. She's wondering, I wonder how things went down there with Peter. She walks in. Peter asks her the same question. Is this the prize? She goes, yes. Peter goes, you're going to die too. She falls down and dies. Wow. Now, how does Peter know she's going to die too? It doesn't say. What is going on? Why does God allow this to happen? I'm certain that these were not the only two in the early church who were hypocrites, were they? I'm sure that there were others who were living like hypocrites. And I'm sure that in our day and age, we don't see this happen a whole lot, right? Again, if it did, the churches would be a lot emptier than they are. So why does this happen? Well, one of the reasons is because in the early stages of God's church, it's very fragile and vulnerable. And he's trying to protect it, much like you would protect a baby, right? When you were a baby or a toddler, your parents baby-proofed the house. You couldn't touch the outlets. They didn't want you to touch the stove. You weren't allowed to go outside without their permission. 
Now, not so much, right? If you're 18 years old and your parents have to hold your hand crossing the street, you haven't grown up enough. If you can't use a stove without burning your fingers off, you've got a problem, right? In the early phases, there needs to be this protection and shelter and care. And that's what God does. He doesn't want his church to be destroyed when it's so fragile and vulnerable. And so he allows Ananias and Sapphira to die in order to make a point. I take hypocrisy seriously. And I'll protect my church forcefully if necessary. It's not the only instance, by the way, in the New Testament where we see people dying because of their failure to fulfill God's commands, because of their failure to live consistently with the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He who eats and drinks, this is in the Lord's Supper. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's a euphemism for death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, the way you're treating the Lord's Supper, which represents the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you're treating it wrongly, some of you are dying. Those who say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the one of the New Testament haven't read the whole Bible. Because the God of the New Testament is still holy even as he extends forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. He calls us to holiness and he cares deeply about sin. And when he judges it in a dramatic way like this, it is to protect the rest of the community. Uh, When I was a kid, one of the most popular Christian speakers was a man by the name of Mike Warnke. Mike Warnke was a Christian comedian and he had this amazing testimony of when he was in college and he had joined a satanic coven And he had participated in child sacrifice and all of this ritualistic abuse. And then he came out of it by the grace of God. And he shared this testimony to tens of thousands of people. And people would line up to hear this man speak uh, until they found out it was all a lie. He made it all up. There was no satanic coven. There was no truth to his story. They found pictures of him in college looking uh, like your typical button-down 70s square. His friends said, no, I I think I would remember if my roommate Mike was a Satanist killing babies. None of it ever happened. It stirred the Church of the United States to anger and disappointment and frustration and disillusionment. But you know what? It also accomplished a greater degree of accountability for Christian speakers and leaders. The people moved in and they said, if you're going to have a public platform, someone needs to hold your feet to the fire. And I think sometimes God allows these things to be exposed, people to be embarrassed, and in this case, allows them to be judged with death to protect his church and to protect his people because he cares about the community. For us, your, your judgment, my judgment, it may not happen until the day we see Jesus. could be that you live a life of hypocrisy for 40 years and you get away with it. But the day will come when we will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. And judgment may begin now. It may be deferred until later. But God cares deeply about holiness. And as we see, as we move forward, the people respond with fear and reverence. Second part of verse 5. Great fear came over all who heard of it. And then verse 11. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. They respond in fear of God and reverence to say, we don't want to live as hypocrites. We want to be pure 
We want to be holy. We want to pursue Jesus Christ. And as you look through verses 12 through 16, you see the spirit begins to move in response to this renewed purity of the people. And more and more people come to know Jesus and the church grows closer together. And God allows his spirit to move in a new way through the people because they're seeking holiness, because they're seeking purity. If you drive through some of the little towns around here in College Station, they're known as speed traps, a few of them, right? And there's uh, all of these rumors that go around. If you drive through this town, it's a speed trap. Make sure you drive the speed limit. Drive through this town, it's a speed trap. You drive down Texas Avenue and you see a police officer, what happens? You slow down just a little bit, don't you? Even if you're going the speed limit, you go, I'm going to go 10 under just to be sure. I've always thought maybe police officers enjoy that, right? They drive 15 just to see if everybody will drive behind them. And as you look at that, you go, okay, does the police officer pull everybody over and catch every speeder? No, of course not. He can't. He just has to pull over enough to make you think twice about speeding. And what we see here in Acts 5, God could wipe out every sinner. He could kill us all. But what he does is he allows Ananias and Sapphira to experience this extreme judgment to say, I care about sin. I care about holiness. And again, we have no evidence that Ananias and Sapphira are really not Christians. I think it's likely they are. I think it's likely we will see them in heaven. But judgment often comes to God's people to remind us as a community that he cares about our holiness. He cares about our purity. And if you know Jesus Christ, you're called to represent him. And so those who are living in hypocrisy, it calls them to live in fear. It calls us to reevaluate our lives and consider, am I living that way? Do I put on one face on Sunday and another face on Monday? Do I put on one face with my Christian friends and a whole other one privately? Do the things that I look at, the activities I engage in, give the lie to the claim that I want to know Jesus closely? And I think it also reminds us of the absolute immense grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because I read a passage like this and I say, I deserve to die. I deserve it. Because I don't always live in keeping with my confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Not only do I deserve to die, but I deserve eternal separation from him. And yet God, in his grace, has placed the punishment on Jesus Christ. And so the proper response to a passage like this is to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I trust in you. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm not going to hide my sin. I'm not going to go bury the gold in the ground. But I'm going to be vulnerable, open, confess it, and seek mercy from Jesus Christ. As you look throughout the scripture, men and women who confess their sin and seek mercy and grace, they're always given it. Because God waits to forgive. Those who die are those who hide. And so I look at a passage like this and I praise God that I'm standing here today alive. And so are you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, the message in this passage is this, that you are worthy of death. You're worthy of not only death, but eternal separation, eternal death in hell. But God put Jesus Christ in your place on the cross. He took your sin. He defeated sin and death by rising again. And you can have eternal life if you trust in him. For those of us who know him, the message is this, that each day, each day, we need to 
ask for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Not to earn our salvation. We can never do that. But to remember that we are always in his debt and that we are called as a community to live in holiness. To avoid the painful judgment that can often come even on God's people because of our sin. And so as we sing a few more songs here in a moment, the question is, this that I want us to reflect on. Are you living in hypocrisy? Are you here this morning and you say, yeah, I know that the way I'm living throughout the week, the way I'm acting isn't consistent with the values of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here and you know that and yet you're not taking any steps to change or to grow. Maybe that you're here and you say, you know, I'm really struggling with sin, but I'm seeking through accountability, through confession, through prayer, through seeking the mercy of God to be restored to God. And that's great if that's where you are, but who I'm specifically talking to, maybe those among us here this morning who you know that you're not in a right place with God and you're trying to hide. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, you're running away and you're thinking, I can go where God won't find me. And the truth is he sees you already every moment, every second, and he's reaching out his hand in Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll restore you to fellowship with me. I'll forgive your sin over and over and over again. And maybe this is the day to reach out to him in confession and repentance and know that you can walk closely with him again and be a part of a community of men and women who proclaim the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. So where do we need to change? Where do we need to grow? By the power of the Holy Spirit in the grace of God. Father, we praise you this evening that you are a gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and in steadfast love. Father, you shower your mercies to the thousandth generation. And although you do punish sin, Lord, we know that we can find mercy and grace when we come to you because of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us um, humility Father, we pray that you would grant us the honesty to admit that we are sinners and in need of your grace and seek it from you. Father, so that we will grow closer to you and be effective in what you've called us to do, to make the name of Jesus Christ known. We praise you, Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. God bless.